Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Steve Airy. Steve is a UK-based confident coach, and he is the author of The Code of Extraordinary Change, available on Amazon. Thank you so much, Steve, for coming on the show today. Oh, hey, it's my pleasure, Chris. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and the things that you do? Yeah, I, I, uh, I started out as a coach back in 2002. Um, so, wow, time flies, huh? <laughs> and, and sort of started out coaching everyone in everything. Um, and quickly found that I didn't much enjoy that as a way of coaching people. Life's a pretty big subject. Um, and so calling yourself a life coach, I, I kind of squirm at that, that kind of moniker. Um, but what I found is regardless of whether we were working on relationships or finances or health or work or whatever else, um, the people I'd worked with came out with more confidence than they started with. And I found that fascinating. So I kind of, um, stopped coaching, um, and picked apart what was happening there. You know, what was the reason that these people came out feeling more naturally confident and ready to get out there and do stuff. Um, so I put a method together back in 2007 was when I started specializing in self-confidence. Um, and that, that was very much kind of, you know, a a 1.0, um, and since then, I've just sort of been digging deeper and deeper and deeper into the subject, what, what confidence is, what allows it, what gets in the way, and iterated my coaching method um, based on what I've learned. And kind of, you know, where I am today, I think uh, there's some, some cracking insights in, in the realm of neuroscience as well that I've fed in. So there's a, a, a really sweet combination of things that I've learned working with clients, stuff I've learned in my own life, um, neuroscience findings, uh, and a lot of research as well. That's great. I, I want to delve into some of these topics. Uh, the first one I wanted to explore is like, where does self-doubt and second-guessing originate? And if somebody's listening to this, how do they overcome some of these self-limiting thoughts? That's, uh, that's, a, that's an excellent question, Chris. Um, you know, I mean, self-doubt and second-guessing, there are books written on that subject alone. So, um, you know, there, there's a lot of depth and breadth. But essentially, um, and there's subtly different things also. Second-guessing is wondering if your actions are enough. So that's, um, you know, did I take the right job? Is this person I'm dating the right person for me? Um, this move I'm planning to, to my next city, is that going to work out? Um, so it's, it's wondering if your actions are enough or if they're right. Self-doubt is wondering if you're enough as a person, as an individual. So it's saying, I'll never be able to do this. You know, I'm going to get rejected in this relationship. Um, this job is never going to work out because I'm not up to it. Um, so that that's kind of the distinction I make between second guessing and self doubt. And dealing with them isn't a one time thing. It's not something that you know you can nail one day on a Tuesday afternoon, and then you know then you're up and running and you never have to look at those things again. Um, it it needs consistent, deliberate attention 
to manage those conditions. Because otherwise, you know, our natural state and, and the way our brains work is that we're hardwired to doubt and to second guess. And that the reason being is that our brains crave certainty and safety above anything else. Um, you know, once our basic needs of, of food and sustenance are met, our brain's job is to keep us alive, right? So any, any exposure to risk or possibility or change or uncertainty scares the hell out of it. So our brain will do things, will create thoughts, and, and, and there are neurochemical processes that happen here that make us crave certainty. You know, that's why being uncertain about something feels so damn uncomfortable, because our brain's reacting to it. So it's second-guessing and self-doubt are really mechanisms to ensure that we're certain and safe about what's going to happen next. So I guess in terms of managing those things, there's... You know, there's a couple of things, I guess, that, that can be done. And I think, you know, for, for second guessing, it's really knowing that whatever action you take, whatever path you go on, um, again, it can be relationship focused. It can be about career, geography, whatever else. It's saying, if I knew that I could deal with whatever happens, no matter what happens, what choice would I make? And, you know, I, I, I've been there and again, you know, it happens to me and I have to catch myself doing it where you go around, you go around in loops, you know, you have this spiral of second guessing. Well, what if that happens? Or, or what if I then do this? Or what if she does that? Um, and it's really not helpful. It's just your brain trying to predict a certain future. So it's really just saying, you know, nobody knows what's going to happen. There's no way to know how things are going to turn out ahead of time. So if I knew I could deal with whatever happens, no matter what happens, what choice would I make? And then for self-doubt, which again is that, that wondering whether you're enough, whether you're worthy, um, it's kind of asking yourself, well, what would the very best version of me, that's the version who feels buzzing, who feels at the top of their game, who feels alive and connected, what would that person do now? One of the other questions I wanted to ask you about, I'm going to kind of shift gears a little bit, is about the idea of some of these strategies that people kind of use when they're interacting with people. And one of the strategies we see a lot, or at least I see a lot in my coaching, is people-pleasing. And I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about how people-pleasing is detrimental to confidence and some strategies that people can use in order to do kind of less people-pleasing and follow their heart or the things that they want for themselves but are oftentimes worried or scared to admit. Right. Yeah, and it's, again, it's one of those patterns of behavior that, that happens. It can happen quite naturally without you noticing. Um and there's kind of a fine line as well. You know, there's nothing wrong with being generous or going out of your way to help someone. Um, but there's a line where that turns into people pleasing as a, as a more negative habit. I guess there's, you know, fundamentally people pleasing is about keeping everybody else happy so that they won't judge you, so that they won't reject you, or sometimes so that they won't even see you. 
right? If, if you can, the, the premise is, if you can keep everyone around you happy, then effectively, you know, you're not rocking the boat. There are no rough edges for them to pick up on and have a go at you about. You, you can kind of hide yourself away and again, be safe. Um, you're increasing the certainty of your environment by pleasing everyone else. So, you know, there's, they're not going to attack you or reject you. And you're not going to be, you're not opening yourself up to be vulnerable. By pleasing everyone around you, you're kind of putting walls around you a little bit. And if you keep doing that, you know, that you effectively turn into the bottomless pit, right? So you just keep kind of giving and giving and pleasing and pleasing. And pretty soon that becomes uh, an ingrained habit. And you forget kind of what matters to you. You forget who you are, um, what you want your life to be about. And you, yeah, you, you really do forget the things that matter to you, that people pleasing becomes the priority. Um, and so this disconnect starts happening this disconnect between who you are and the way you're living your life. And steadily over time, you, you kind of become disconnected or untethered from this core of you, right? And by that, by that core of you, I, I mean the kind of foundation, the things that are, that are always there that you can trust and rely on, um, the things that really mean a lot to you. And, and so, you know, people pleasing over time, it just, through that sense of personal disconnection, um, it removes you from any sense of personal power that you can make change happen in your life, that you can exhibit, um, or that you can manifest things in your life, things that you want, because your life is all about giving people what they want. So your confidence moves from being able to trust your ability to make choices to just being able to please everyone else. You, 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 know, you become supremely confident in your ability to please everyone else. But other than that, it, it's kind of zero confidence. And it's something that happens in, in kind of all walks of life as well. You know, it happens in personal relationships. It happens in families and friendships. It happens in organizations as well. You know, teams get together to work on something that they really want to be cool or different. But over time, when the team starts to please management or the stakeholders or the budget holders, the edges kind of get smoothed over, um, the value gets diluted, and eventually they, they kind of churn out, uh, you know, another version of, of what has already been done. Um, and all because they, they need to please the boss or the manager or the stakeholders or the shareholders. So this people pleasing, you know, it's, it's kind of pervasive really, but it, it really stifles um, personal action, personal meaning, creativity, innovation, confidence. It's, yeah, it's kind of a big deal. It made me think of kind of a few things as you were speaking. One is, yeah, people pleasing oftentimes when people are doing this. And, and everybody is guilty of this at certain points in their life. And there are certain points when... Yes, getting the validation of people around you is important. <laughs> like it's important. We can't live it. Like society doesn't function unless people seek each other's validation to a certain extent. But what you were talking about more specifically, it can be very detrimental. And people often will use it to, as you said, avoid conflict, which is a goal to avoid judgment. 
and as a consequence, reduce risk. And, and, and I really like what you said about groups of people when people get into groups or businesses. I was thinking about Steve Jobs and one of the things that Steve Jobs had said in like throughout his career is that he really liked a type people. My interpretation of what he meant was, um, from hearing him talk about it or reading was people who not only were good at what they're doing, but also didn't have, they weren't as inhibited in the sense that they Hmm. were, they would speak up and fight for the things that they believed in. They didn't mind telling him that you're wrong and get into a yelling match with him. And I'm not advocating this like uh, to go around and start (laughs) screaming at everybody, but they, they weren't scared to tell him that's stupid and this right. is why, and, and they said one of the things Jobs would often do is he would fight and fight and fight. And then the next day you'd be in a meeting with him and he would take on the idea like it was his idea. And it was a way, <laughs> a way for him to vet these ideas. Right. And, uh, because he was trying to prevent exactly what you describe. People in a group will often seek the validation of whoever the person is in power. Things get smoothed over. And as a consequence, some really good ideas, uh, get swept under the rug, uh, so to speak, and you end up with the status quo or a, kind of a, a weaker outcome because of the things that we're talking about. People are trying sure. to avoid conflict, reduce judgment, and and reduce risk. For sure, yeah. And uh, it's interesting you use the word power there as well. And and there is kind of a power dynamic when you're doing that because whether it's a, a, a team or an individual, by going out of your way or by uh, forming a habit where all you do is please them, you're kind of giving them all the power, right? They have the power in that relationship or in that, that group dynamic. And then your insights and your value and your ability to, to contribute as an individual isn't, you know, doesn't, that doesn't get a look in at that point because you, you've given that power away. It's their way. It's kind of what they say or, or what they want. People pleasing oftentimes is, is a strategy for building alignments, right? And they're trying to build an alignment by making the leader happy or whoever they perceive as ha- having the highest social power. And, and in some cases, everybody, <laughs> there might be some people who are listening to this who are trying to make everybody happy. But, um, I think you're a hundred percent right when you, when, when you talk about not only giving up your own power, but kind of being, I forget how exactly you phrased it, but, essentially yourself becomes diluted in the process. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I guess, I mean, the, you know, to kind of go back to, I guess, one of the first points is that there's nothing wrong in doing something nice for other people, right? It's, it's, it's not a question of it, it suddenly being all about you and what you want and getting your own way. You know, generosity is a, is a trait that's fantastic. And I think, you know, the world kind of needs more generosity and it needs more consideration and empathy and compassion and all those things. Those are, those are amazing qualities. But I think there's a difference between when doing something for someone else is from a place of nourishment versus malnourishment, right? If it's going to damage you, then it's, it turns into that negative habit. Um, but if it enriches you or is based on a foundation of value, then absolutely, you know, I, I, I would applaud it. I think that a lot of the guys who are listening to this struggle with kind of boundaries between these different things, right? For example, let's say that they have been up into this point more of 
people pleaser and they want to project more confidence. They want to assert themselves more, but they're worried about coming off as too arrogant or some of these, uh, some of these associations we make when somebody goes too far. And even that oftentimes is, is a matter of perception. But if there's a person who's listening to this, how can they gauge and they're struggling with this problem? How can they gauge when they're being too confident or they're not being confident enough? You know, I don't think it's possible based on, on my perception of what confidence is. Um, I don't think it's possible to be too confident. You know, confidence is, is perfect and whole and round and it's a hundred percent. The difference, I think, between confidence and arrogance is, um, confidence is quiet, arrogance is noisy. That's, that's kind of what I boil it right down to. Confidence is knowing that you're whole and you're okay and you can deal with whatever happens. Confidence is being able to trust your behavior with implicit trust in that behavior. So you can make a decision with implicit trust in that decision and know that you can deal with whatever happens. You know, and that gives you that, you know, a real sense of inner confidence. There's a, a sense of solidity to it. And you don't have to go and shout about it because it's, it's quiet. Um, there's a grace or an ease to it. Arrogance is noisy. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of arrogance is using bluff and bluster to, to kind of get your own way or to steamroller through. Arrogance kind of needs input from other people. You know, because it's all about projecting yourself as this, in quotes, confident creature. And you need other people to, to validate that, to say, yeah, you know what, Steve, you are, you're awesome at your job or, you know, you're great in this, in this situation or this set of circumstances. But that really happens because you're a- acting, you know, like an arrogant asshole. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, arrogance tends to be about prioritizing bluff and bluster over um, real confidence and real insight and real value. And it, oftentimes it's about chasing status or validation or recognition at the expense of those things, at the expense of other people even. And I think there's this idea that you can fake confidence. And I think that there's, you can to a certain degree you know, you can stand upright, you can stretch your spine out, stand tall, and you can walk into a room and, you know, feel more confident by doing that. And there are even studies to support that. I think there's a TED talk by uh, a professor called Amy Cuddy. I think she, she, she's written a book or a paper as well. It's came up like three times in the last oh, week has by really? different guests. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. That's all, yeah. um, but, you know, I, I think she's got it partly wrong. You know, because Amy Cuddy, she talks about power poses. You know, that if you stand up straight, puff out your chest, um, that you, you become more confident or that you feel more confident. And in her, in her writing and in her presentation, she talks about things like power and dominance. But power and dominance aren't the same as confidence. Um, you know, power and, dom- and dominance often have more to do with arrogance than they do with that kind of quiet, um, easy inner confidence. I, I guess if you don't have a clear notion of what confidence means for you, 
then, yeah, you can act your way into behaving arrogantly, right? Because you think, well, this is how confident people do it, so I'll, I'll just do it that way. Whereas actually you might be behaving really arrogantly. So I think there's, there's you know, one thing is to really look at what confidence means for you um, and look at times in your life where you felt naturally confident and, you know, what was it that allowed you to feel that way? But I think often, you know, faking confidence and, and having that be about power and dominance is what leads people into arrogance. And there's a, there's a key distinction, I think, between the two as well. You know, I've mentioned that confidence is quiet, arrogance is noisy, but there's, there's something here about how much you value yourself or, or how, how well you regard yourself. Real confidence, what I call natural confidence, is knowing that you're already good enough rather than pretending to be a certain way because you don't feel good enough. It makes me think of uh, something Kanye West said. It's one of the few times I've seen Kanye kind of open up and be vulnerable. Uh, he was saying that he used to tell himself things to build up his ego and that it's gotten a little too far. <laughs> and, and, and then obviously he came out a few years later with an album that one of the songs was like, I am God, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, yeah. but, um, he worked past that moment of humility. Cause I, in a lot of ways, like to me, he, he, he epitomizes arrogance and there is a certain part of our society that does value it. And I'm not saying that like if everybody in the society behaves like Kanye, that society would be better <laughs> off. Like society right. would cease to function. Like it just right. would not be able to function. And yeah. so what you're talking about is that kind of quiet confidence, I think is a lot healthier for most people. Kanye is a celebrity, right? And, and his role as a celebrity, one of the biggest roles is to stay relevant. And the way that he stays relevant is by creating controversy. And a big part of how you create controversy, well, one of the ways, let me take a step back. There's lots of ways that he, he creates controversy, but one of the ways he does is by pressing this kind of arrogance button. Um, I don't think most people are looking to move into that direction. And, and some of these ideas that you have are great. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchrisma.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. I'm wondering if you can dig even deeper into this idea of confidence and what are maybe some of the specific things or building blocks 
that somebody would need to develop or arrange in order to have a foundation of healthy confidence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just to your point, you know, Kanye is, is not the most uh, humble man in the world. And the other name that popped into my head hearing you talk there really quickly was Donald Trump as well. Same thing, right? using the same strategy. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. I would love to sit in a room with each of those one-on-one and just kind of <laughs> try and get under their skin a little bit and behind those walls and kind of see see what's going on. Anyway, one of the first things I, I would do with, with a client is look at values. Um, and, and this is really the only thing that I insist every single client I work with does and digs deep into because it's so damn important. So my definition of a value is it's something in yourself, in other people or out there in the world that means something to you, that matters to you. And these values, they live kind of 10,000 feet down inside you. They're, they're in your bones. They're kind of hardwired into your brain, actually. They're the, the, the pathways that, that makes your brain light up. They're the really fast connections. And if you think back to times in your life where you felt alive or buzzing or at your best at the top of your game, then the reason why you felt that way is because you've been honoring or demonstrating or expressing one or more of your values. So a quick route to feeling that more often is to get really clear on what your values are and then to look to um, introduce them or express them in different ways in different parts of your life. So what I'll urge listeners and, and clients to do is to really focus on one of those peak moments. So just find, you know, something that's happened over the last year, two years, five years, however long, however long ago, one of those moments where you felt buzzing alive at the top of your game and just really find a moment. Don't, you know, don't think, oh, well, that vacation I had down in, in Miami was amazing. You know, a week is too long. It needs to be like, a minute, you know, what was the highlight of that trip or what was the highlight of that day? Um, and then you, you kind of really drill into it. You dig and dig and dig underneath. Um, what, what was going on? Who was with you? What was important about them being with you? What was it that allowed you to feel that way? And what was important about those things? Keep digging, keep asking what was important. Um, what's the reason this mattered to me? And, event, and, you know, when you dig, 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 you kind of get to this gold nugget at the core, which could be a word, it could be a handful of words, it could be a sensation that you can attach a word to even. But I think getting really clear on those values, it, it kind of does two things. It, it allows you to get that solid foundation in place because those things are in you. You know, they're just there waiting to be used. You can trust them. They're not going anywhere. And being able to trust those things is confidence. You know, that's, that's really what confidence is, is being able to trust yourself. I have many definitions of confidence when I'm talking about it in different ways, but my favorite, I think, is that it's being able to choose your behavior with implicit trust in that behavior. So that's regardless of outcomes. You know, whatever happens, you can choose your behavior and trust that behavior. That's a hell of a lot more um, easy to do when your behavior is founded on your values. So if you have a value of um, creativity, 
or connection or, you know, whatever it might be. You know, I, I don't want to reel off a, a, a pile of words because that, that's going to plant words in people's heads. But it's things like creativity, connection, et cetera, et cetera. Those fundamental pieces of life that matter to you. Yeah, that was one of the things I was, as you were talking, I was thinking about, because I think there's a lot of great stuff here. But if you tell guys who are listening to this or anyone who's listening to this, you need to start with your values. Most of them, I think, are going to list the values that they feel that society is going to want them to put down on a piece of paper. Right. And so do do you see where I'm going with this? Totally, totally. And I've, I've kind of seen, um, you know, other coaches have their own values exercises and I've, over the years, I've seen a couple of these and, you know, I'm not going to name names, but I've seen a couple where they literally have, um, 50 words on an A4 piece of paper and they say, just pick your top five. And it's, it's, it's crazy because you're, you're going to end up picking the things that you think sound best right? Or that make you feel like a good person or that, or that you think will make others think you're a good person. It makes you think of co- company value statements. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. And those things don't necessarily need to mean anything to you or they don't resonate or they might not be woven through your life. There's two things really quick. I mean, this is, I, when I look at those company value statements, I see two things often. One of them is what they think people will expect or want them to say. And two, right. what letters are in their name. <laughs> what, what words yeah. <laughs> like of That's, all of them there you go. like oh there's a c we need to have creativity yeah uh, we yeah, need yeah. because we have a c in the name of our company so right um, right but uh, let's make a really a really nice sounding acronym people yeah yeah I mean, those, right. are, those are shitty <laughs> shitty reasons but keep going <laughs> oh man i love it exactly so you know there, there's that real temptation to work on values as an outside in thing you know you work externally and then try and match them up with something meaningful on the inside, and that doesn't work. So you have to start from the inside, um, you know, what matters to you, what has resonance, what is embedded in your life, and then you can start to project those externally. I want to kind of shift into a few other things. Uh, one of them uh, I, w- I want to talk about is rejection, put-downs, People who are trying to, in certain cases, either test you or they feel threatened by the fact that you're projecting confidence. How does somebody who's listening to this effectively kind of handle people who feel threatened by the fact that they're confident and as a consequence, try to undermine it? Um, it's a good question. And I, I think there's probably a couple of different things there. If you're behaving from that kind of core of natural confidence, then I don't think it's, it's going to matter a great deal what other people think, first of all. Um, I think it's also far less likely that you're going to be pissing people off or treading on toes or, you know, having that kind of reaction that you're being too confident. Um, certainly if you're behaving arrogantly, then you, you can expect some of that coming back at you. So that, that ease of natural confidence tends to put other people at ease as well. So with that said, I think there's got to be a sense of what you need to own and then what you don't need to own, right? So if, you know, people have stuff going on, people have, people have complicated lives and everyone has their own shit to deal with. 
that's like day one of coaching school, right? <laughs> you know, if, if you get um, something negative coming back from someone or a snappy remark or a put down, then actually it might just be because they've got a lot going on. They might be under a heap of pressure. They might, you know, they might be just having an off day. Sometimes just acknowledging that can be enough for you to let it go. You know, it's no big deal. There's no need to turn it into a drama. It's their stuff. It's got nothing to do with you personally. I think where it becomes an issue is where you're in a relationship where that kind of pecking or that kind of put down behavior becomes consistent. And there's a, I can't believe I'm going to do this, but um, I'm going to quote Dr. Phil. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, I, I, as, a, as a middle-aged English guy in the UK, we don't get a lot of Dr. Phil over here, but uh, he, he, he does speak some sense. And, and one of his, one of his kind of, life rules is you teach people how to treat you. So if you're in a, you know, it could be whether you're single or in a relationship or if this is a boss or a colleague or whatever else, if people are snapping or consistently putting you down, then your response to that behavior is part of the problem. Um, because, you know, all the time they think it's okay to keep doing that, they'll keep doing it human beings are kind of dumb like that. You know, we see something that works and we keep doing it. So I think first of all, it's, it's look at what your response has been um, that kind of might play a part in, in keeping that put down behavior as a consistent habit. And then just look at how you can change that. And that's the really scary bit um, because, you know, you, your priority at that point, and, and it come, kind of comes back a little bit to people pleasing you know, you'll be in a habit where you're used to them getting their own way or them coming out of the situation with the power and you just feeling like crap. So changing that is really scary because it requires you to be vulnerable. And, you know, your urge will be to not rock the boat or not make things worse um, or not to piss that person off any more than they already are. All those things are just thoughts, by the way. They're thoughts that your brain has created in an effort to stop you from changing things or stop you from risk and change and, and, and possibility. But at some point, you know, th the bottom line is if you keep yourself in that situation, it, it's not going to change by itself. So how long are you going to go before something gives? Five years down the line, if you're still being put down and pecked at, you're going to be diminished so much that you're capability of changing is going to be so much less and you're going to feel so much worse in every walk of life. So, you know, I think it's just, there's a point where, and I, you know, I hate to say it, but there's a point where you've kind of got to suck it up and make a choice that's in your best interests. A few things kind of bounced around in my mind as you were talking. One is I often see exactly what you're describing. And in certain specific cases, I found that Part of it is rooted in their lack of having the ability to express themselves. And so what happens is, and these again are like specific cases, but people will hold in and hold in and hold in and people will walk all over them. They'll, they'll feel like they're being stepped on and inside they'll grumble, but they'll mm -hmm. hold it in and then they explode like a volcano. Right. Right. And so they'll go through this cycle because they don't understand how to articulate the things uh, that they want, uh, probably a better term would be, uh, to use would be passive aggressive behavior. 
mm-hmm. right? That's actually probably a better term to kind of describe this this tendency. But I, I like I feel like as you were talking about that, I've seen this kind of passive aggressive tendency more than once where somebody holds things in and then they explode because they don't, as you said, suck it up and express themselves. And, and unfortunately, when you're learning this skill, you are going to make some mistakes. I was actually talking to a friend of mine who she's originally from Afghanistan. And she was talking about how a couple of times she's done things that have embarrassed her. Like she told a guy that we should get married and she said, but she's trying to understand kind of Western culture. And she goes, she was embarrassed about it. And other people think, oh, that girl's crazy. But she was trying to essentially test and learn how to function in, in some of these other cultures that she didn't grow up in. And so it's not intuitive. That was one thing. Another thing that I thought about this idea of adaptability. And I started thinking of listening to different leaders speak. For example, listen to Obama speak and he'll have a heckler in the room where a lot of people will just absolutely avoid the heckler. He will actually let them speak. He doesn't snap back at them and tell them you're stupid, you're crazy. He's comfortable enough with himself to adapt to certain circumstances that a lot of people would feel very uncomfortable. And as a consequence of giving the person the opportunity to speak, trying to understand, even if they sound crazy, understand what they're trying to communicate. He'll use that to come off as somebody who is a little bit healthier or more intelligent, in certain cases, significantly more healthy or intelligent than the person who started the dialogue. Right, absolutely. It's kind of like the um, you know, what they teach you in martial arts is it's kind of to to take that energy that that you're being attacked with and then just use that um, you know, to turn it back around. And and I think, you know, that that the example you just mentioned is is great. You know, I think responding with some openness and honesty and listening and inquiring you know, it's, it's taking that energy and doing something else with it rather than just burying it, you know? Um, yeah, I think that's a great strategy. I have some more questions for you. I mean, you have so many wonderful insights. I'm really enjoying this. I know the listeners are as well. If somebody is trying to figure out what they really want out of life and they want to create a game plan so they can have clear goals and achieve them or pursue them, or have the confidence to pursue them. How does somebody go through that process if they've never done it before? How do they define what it is that they really want? And that's one of those um, essay questions, right? It's, it's, <laughs> and, and yeah, I think what you want changes as time goes by as well. People put a heap of pressure on themselves to find the thing that they should be doing, you know, particularly I think out of college or, or folks in their twenties, they want to find that thing. They, they want to find their place, you know, find something that they can contribute to or be great at that. Um, but often what you want can change, you know, every, every X number of years. So I think one thing is to kind of not be too hung up on finding that one thing that you want that will make your life come into focus. Because chances are there isn't one thing like that. Um, there could be an array of different things over time. So, I mean, with that said, I think looking at your values, which we've talked about earlier, is a really, really great way of getting into this. And your values will give you big clues about what you want. So if, for example, one of your values is creativity, um, then going to work a nine-to-five job in a bank probably isn't going to 
work for you. You know, unless you can find a way to exhibit or demonstrate or honor that creativity, um, you're going to feel unfulfilled and you're not going to feel like you're living a life that you want. I like this. I feel like a lot of people might misinterpret some of these values as being creative is something that is a value for me. So I'm going to plan an hour a week to be creative. And instead, what you're saying is you want that value to permeate their entire life. Absolutely. I mean, and even if, let's say that you do get that nine to five job in a bank. The question is, well, how can I be creative in this role? Or how can I exhibit creativity in this job? How can I be creative with my coworkers? Um, you know, so there are opportunities to exhibit your values um, every single day of the week in different parts of your life. And, you know, I, I really encourage people to explore that and to figure figure out, um, you know, if there's a piece of your life that doesn't feel like it fits or doesn't feel like it's belonging, then trying to figure out how you can exhibit more of your values in that in that space can make it feel more you, can make it feel more like something that, that fits. But certainly in looking at what you want, uh, your values play a, a big role. There's an exercise that I, I look at um, every so often personally and something that, that I ask clients to do sometimes as well. Um, I don't know who came up with it originally, but it's been bouncing around the personal development world for, for ages. I actually discovered it, crikey, it was probably around 20 years ago. And a friend of mine, I was just standing in a pub and a friend of mine um, said to me, uh, she said, Steve, what would be your perfect day? And I kind of, I took a little sip of my beer and I just started telling a story of what my perfect day would be, you know, where I'd be. I'm waking up in the morning and then this happens. Um, and then this awesome thing happens. And then, then at lunchtime, this, this thing goes on. And then, you know, it was almost hour by hour. I kind of told this little story of who I was with, what I was doing, how I was feeling. And it kind of laid out a narrative of what my perfect day would be. And actually 20 years later, that, still pretty much holds true and gives me big clues about the things that I want. Um, and again, you know, if, if I correlate my values to that perfect day, there's huge linkage. You know, my values are being expressed and honored and demonstrated in my perfect day. So that's something just to play with. You know, you can get pen and paper or, or start a new note in Evernote or, you know, however you want to do it and just start writing or journaling, you know, completely free form from the moment your eyes flick open to the moment your head hits the pillow, what would happen in your perfect day? For people who begun to define what their perfect day is and their current day is not their perfect day, <laughs> there's probably, right. there's probably yep. some getting out of the comfort zone that's involved here. So right. if somebody needs to stretch themselves, expand their personality, do some things that they've never done, to challenge the status quo and expand their comfort zone, how should listeners proceed, push back these things that inhibit them? And should it be like a gradual change or should it be something that's done kind of shock and awe all at once? <laughs> um, I think I think the honest answer is it's both things. You know, there's the, the old phrase, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And that's absolutely true. You know, whatever you want or whatever direction you want to head in, you've got to start with a first step. And often that big picture or, or being faced with a huge challenge 
um, whether it's getting into a relationship or career change or, you know, whatever it might be, starting a business even, um, that seems immense at first. But it's like, you know, bring it right back down and say, well, what's just one thing I can do towards that? What's one thing I can explore or one thing I can try or one thing that would be kind of fun? And I think that having a sense of ease about each step is really important. Because, again, we can, we can, our brains will create a narrative around things um, so that it becomes a struggle, so that we're kind of this um, victim or a struggling artist or nobody gets us, right? And, of course, that's all uh, BS as well, you know? And, and that, that narrative is there to make us right rather than happy. You know, that, that's a way of dealing with failure so that if things screw up down the line, then we have that narrative to fall back on to say, well, you know, we kind of gave it a shot, but we always knew it was a long shot and, you know, the world was against us. Um, so I think just, yeah, start with a single step. Have that step be something easy. Ask yourself, what's a way I can have a sense of ease about this? But no matter how far you go, there's always that moment where you have to move from thought to action. You know, there's a point where you have to cross the border between what's known and what's comfortable into what's unknown and uncomfortable. And that, that's where a lot of people get stuck, you know, is taking that step into the unknown or a step into the uncertain. And the key thing there is just really not to look at that as the enemy. You know, that's not something to resist. It's not something to struggle against or to fight against or to create a narrative around. It's just something that happens. Um, it's just the thought you have about this thing, you know, this next step. We don't know what's going to happen. So ignore those narratives and just trust yourself to take that next step. It's easy. I mean, it's easy for me to say that. It sounds kind of flippant or facetious, but... Um, essentially that's what it is and it becomes easier and it kind of, you know, this, this loops back to the previous question again about what you want or how to figure out what you want. And sometimes I talk about playing a game that matters. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, (laughs) I'm pretty vehemently anti-goal. Um, and I've written a lot of stuff about why that's the case, but I think a better way to look at forward motion is to look at it as playing a game that matters, right? So, and a game is founded on your values. A game takes you towards something that you want. So, I mean, let's say you wanted to um, win a Grand Slam tennis tournament, right? And, and your values were the foundation for that. Then, you know, you've got to get in the game of tennis and start playing your best. You know, you can't keep planning and planning and planning forever. Because sooner or later, you've got to get on the court and pick up your racket. Um, but similarly, you know, you can go and find the best tennis shoe for you. You can try different rackets and see what feels good. You can practice. Um, you can develop strategies for improving your, your serve or your backhand. You know, there are so, so many ways of becoming a great player in a game that matters to you um, that take the pressure off. And because it's... It, you know, I think putting it in that kind of language does take the pressure off and can even make it, you know, can create that sense of ease, can even create a sense of fun around it. So I, I've just sort of bounced around all sorts of different things there. My neurons are firing like crazy, but 
I don't know if any of that makes sense. It makes complete sense. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I mean I'm not going to comment on all of it, but I'm about over on time. But even the last, uh, the last thought you said about having fun, most of our goals, if they're not fun, we won't enjoy them. We won't pursue them. I mean, this is awesome, man. I like, I, like I said, I'm about over on time. I want to thank you for talking to me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hopefully I can get you to, I can get you to come back on here and talk some more. Um, because I, I think that you have great, great, great ideas. In the meantime, if you're listening and you want to learn more about Steve, some of the, the things that he's doing, his coaching, we're going to post some links on the Craft Christmas website and within the description of this podcast so you can find out about it more easily. Thank you so much. Hey, my pleasure. My pleasure. Loved it. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.